1: Welcome to another episode of The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. I am Large William. Across the border from me, in an unnamed cave, is uh, my good pal, my partner in crime, Sammy.
2: Yes, I'm here.
1: This is the third time we've recorded this, the beginning of this episode. Yes. Uh, it's been one of those nights. Technology is uh, trying to encourage us, or to discourage us. From recording something, uh, but we're going to soldier on here, and we're going to just march on, and we're going to talk about two films. We've decided we've made an executive decision to forego talking about what we've watched this week, only because it's midnight now, and we've been at this for about an hour. We've had computer problems prior to that, and it's just turning into a real debacle. So, in the interest of finishing at a reasonable hour, we are going to forego that, and we're going to talk about everything we've watched. When our very special guests that we're going to mention at the end of the show comes on next week. Um, so the first one we're going to be covering, uh, I should say, this episode is brought to you by DiabolicDVD.com um, for all of your media needs, uh, be it Blu-ray or DVD or otherwise, T-shirts, etc., head over to DiabolicDVD.com. Let them know that the gentleman's guide to Midnight Cinema sent you. Um, and um, that would be greatly appreciated. So you had... Uh, Opted to pick uh, Point Blank, 1967, John Boorman film, and uh, Motel Hell from 1980. So two very uh, well known and well loved films in their own circles, certainly, and of course they both fit under the umbrella of what we do. Um, I think first we said we we're going to be covering Point Blank. Was that correct?
2: That is correct.
1: Okay, so we're going to get into it here. Uh, 1967's Point Blank. I will synopsize as I'm in front of a computer. After being double-crossed and left for dead, a mysterious man named Walker single-mindedly tries to retrieve the rather inconsequential sum of money that was stolen from him. Yes. So this was not your first time, nor my first time uh, seeing this film, but I'm curious why you picked this film.
2: Um, I picked it because we haven't really talked. I mean, we've we've had Lee Marvin on. We've had him on for I think Hell in the Pacific. I think, was
1: that was that it? Uh, gosh, like, it might be. I always I always feel like I always want to cover Prime Cut, so I feel yeah. like we have, but Hound in the Pacific might have been the only Lee Marvin we've done.
2: Yeah. So I just wanted to do something. I'd read his biography recently, not too long ago, and so I kind of wanted to do something with him, and I uh, kind of came across the Blu-ray, and I was like, ooh, I'd like to check out the Blu-ray of Point Blank because it's a good-looking movie. I already knew that. Mm-hmm. So, um that was basically the genesis of it. That was really the whole idea of picking it. And it is very GGTMC.
1: It certainly is. It's one that in our circles has, I guess, a lot of love. And I had said, now this is the fourth time you've probably heard this. I'm um, using a piece of uh, information. When uh, Sammy had picked this, I expected to get point break, not point blank. Um, <laughs> And which also falls under the umbrella of what we would talk about, certainly.
2: It makes me laugh every time.
1: I just, and that happened to me, I've had a few times like that, like when um, Magic, the film Magic showed up, and I was expecting to see Anthony Perkins in the cover, not Anthony Hopkins. And I still proceeded to call him Anthony Perkins through the whole review.
2: Yeah, I remember that.
1: (laughs) So that's how it goes. But
2: yeah. I'm I'm looking through Lee Marvin's uh, filmography, and I'm not seeing anything else we've recovered other than Hell in the Pacific.
1: Interesting. interesting. Yeah, it is. And this is a film, it's funny, it's taken over 300 episodes to get here. This is a film I feel like would have seemed on paper to be like within the first year of recovering this film. I know.
2: I know I thought the same thing. I thought this would be... You know, this that one was like one of the first ones I thought in my head. We got to talk about that one. Nobody talks about Point Blank.
1: Yeah, and it fits so well in what we do. Um, you know, we, one of the things that brought us together was tough guy cinema, and you know, certain actors Bronson, Mafuni, Lee Marvin, um, and this is one of those ones that get people that love tough guy cinema and '70s cinema and a little bit of art with their cinema. Uh they Tough Guy Cinema really dig on this film. So yeah, it's okay. very strange. And the cast, too. Let's talk about the cast for a minute here before I get into my notes uh proper. So we got Lee Marvin, uh, of course. He's joined by the always lovely, always enchanting Angie Dickinson. Yes. You a fan and Angie's been on our show before. Has she been on as many times as Lee Marvin, I guess, with um uh Just to
2: Kill. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. I, I'm trying to think if there's <laughs> If we've reached a point in our show where I worry, and I've said this before, to you off the air, about using the same music. But I worry sometimes about picking the same movies, yeah. and neither one of us realize it until like the day we record. <laughs> yeah, look it will, it'll
1: happen at some point, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, by the
2: way, this is a revisit.
1: That's right, man. That's right. It'll, it'll. I'm sure it'll come up at some point. It has to. Uh,
2: I think it might be the only second time she's been on there, uh, on here. I, I, I really. I don't recall anything else off the top of my head outside of uh, *Dressed to Kill*. So,
1: and what's great about Angie is she's lovely. And then her last time on the show, she had a stunt punani fill in for hers in the shower.
2: <laughs> so, it's yeah, this great. time around though, she's actually nude.
1: Yeah, yeah, she's you know she's an interesting actress to me. I feel like in a way, I know you, give it, you won't ever, no one will ever get to hear this conversation, or at least until next week, because we we kind of talked about Scarlett Johansson in the introduction because I you know we'd watched *Under the Skin* and. You'd mentioned about, you thought about it, and I sort of mentioned that I thought she was a good actress, not great, um, very likable, very beautiful, picked some interesting stuff, wasn't afraid to take her clothes off. That's kind of what Angie Dickinson was, too. Yeah. Did some genre stuff, did some high-minded stuff. Yep. You know, a lot of people loved her. So, I mean, Angie yep. Dickinson in Rio Bravo, man, I mean, that's just a vision.
2: Yeah, I'm looking through here. I'm not seeing anything other than to Kill. so. Oddly, she's worked with Lee Marvin quite a few times.
1: Yeah, so they might, they yeah. might have been good friends. Was Angie? Am I? I'm mixing something up here, and all this is a bit embarrassing. But was Angie Dickinson tied to Frank Sinatra uh, for a time?
2: Uh, I think she was tied to that scene for a time. I don't know if she's tied. Yeah, to her. maybe
1: they were just good friends. Because I could have swore I heard in a commentary track something about a story about Sinatra or. She's
2: Eighty-two years
1: old. Wow, and she's still going strong. Yeah. She's uh she looks great for her age. I mean, really, really, you know, charming and sweet and all that. Uh, we get Keenan Wynn, who again, I'll ask this question for the third time, or a variation. Have we had Keenan Wynn on our show before?
2: If we haven't, I find it hard to believe.
1: Because he yeah, he's a guy that's got almost he he's an Anthony Wong esque <laughs> two hundred and seventy nine credits.
2: Yeah, he's he has been in just about everything and anything. Uh, also, a well renowned uh, behind the scenes alcoholic. And there's some pretty great stories uh, about the shooting of this film because Marvin was also an alcoholic. Oh. And uh, those guys were; they, those guys went on a tirade. They were really good friends.
1: They would tie one on. Actually, he really outwonged the Wong. Anthony Wongson got 187 credits.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, but Keenan Wynn has about 150 names. His real name is Francis Xavier Aloysius James Jeremiah Keenan Wynn. Wow,
1: that's a mouthful. <laughs>
2: yeah, that is a mouthful. Yeah, I'm sure he's been on the show. Actually, he's in, uh, no, we haven't done Once Upon the Time in the West. I forgot he was even in that. Yes, did I. Uh, we We've almost covered we have?
1: Black Moon Rising. Uh, yes, we have. Yeah, almost. you and I almost covered it. Me and Miles, Miles almost covered it. Miles and I, I should say, almost covered it. But directed by one of the great names.
2: Oh, he's in The Mechanic. He's in The Mechanic.
1: Well, I'm trying to think of who he was now.
2: He was Harry McKenna, Big Harry in The Mechanic.
1: Oh, wow. Speaking of Harry, uh, I love the name, and that that's really apropos of nothing, but I had to say, speaking of Harry, one of the great names, uh, as far as directors go, Harley Koklis, directed Black Moon Rising. So, anyway, I digress. Let's get back to this film. Um, so, outside of those guys, you got an interesting turn from Carol O'Connor um, as Brewster, John yes. Vernon, who... Has John Vernon ever played a good guy in a film?
2: <laughs> ever? Uh, he, it's a good question. Is it is a good question.
1: Piece of shit and most Canadian, Canadian, Canadian man. That's yeah. right. Oh, oh man. Speaking of speaking of actors with a million names. Yeah, I know. John, he's got one. <laughs> John Vernon's got an incredible name. Oh man, it's like Latin and Polish. Adolphus Raymondus Vernon. Oh, here comes the tough one. Aga- I got Born in Zener, Saskatchewan. I wonder if Christian Christian Bates hardly knows where Zener or Zener, Saskatchewan is.
2: I sometimes feel like being an American that there's parts of Saskatchewan even Canadians don't know exist.
1: Yeah, other than Regina, we can find Regina pretty easily.
2: Yeah, I can find a Regina really fast. <laughs> And I'm not even Canadian. Yes, that's right, man.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, he voiced, uh, we're all over the place here, but we voiced, we voiced, you know, we voiced, he voiced uh, Principal Dinkler on Duckman, and then he voiced, uh, ooh, Doctor yeah. Strange. Uh, he voiced uh, General Ross, the Incredible Hulk series.
2: Yeah, I mean, he he is most known as Dean Wormser, or yes. Wormer, or whatever his name was, obviously. Yes. Um, but you know, he's had a, he had a hell of a career. He was, a uh, you know, he's also, also almost 200 credit guy.
1: 198 man, just right there.
2: And, uh, he had an incredible career and he usually always played a heavy or a CEO or a, just a jackass an asshole, something like that. Mm-hmm. Everything I've ever seen him in has pretty much been that way. He was a pivotal part of film and TV when I was growing up, he was all over the place and stuff. So. Yeah, he, he actually looks pretty suave in this film. He's slimy and sleazy, but he's pretty suave, too.
1: Yeah, he certainly is. Well, yeah, I didn't even realize. Vernon was in a film directed by Nico Masterakis. Uh, that sounds pretty good, called Terminal Exposure. Nice. Joe Estevez. Oh, well, there you got go. Some beach bums who uh, accidentally capture a murder on film, they become detectives. Mm. They're looking for a girl that's got a rose tattoo on her ass. That's amazing. That is. <laughs> oh, and I hope Marie Carlton. I think that's Aaron his girl. hope Marie Carlton from... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. From, from
2: uh, the uh, Sedaris
1: films. films, yeah. Outstanding. So, well, yeah, I've I
2: mean, that. you got an... in.
1: Oh, and further down the list, of course, I oh, won't we'll get into his credits, but you got Sid Haig showing up, who I didn't actually recall seeing.
2: Uh, he was the henchman outside the hotel at uh, John Vernon's oh, hotel. Oh,
1: yes, yes, yes. That's right. That's right. Bill Hickman, yeah. one-time Inglorious Bastard.
2: Yeah, yeah, he's a one-time stuntman, got in front of the camera for a while.
1: Oh, yeah, he was a really celebrated stuntman. Seven Ops and French Connection and Bullet, I mean, he was... You got uh...
2: Carol O'Connor in there, too.
1: Yeah, that's what I'd said.
2: Oh, did you already say his yeah, name? Yeah. I didn't
1: hear you say it. I'd said him...
2: Uh... Oh, I gotta, every time I see Carol O'Connor, I always get a little bit of an Archie vibe, but really, in this one, I get one because I think he has a cigar.
1: Yeah, you do get an Archie vibe, certainly. Huh. Certainly. He's, uh, yeah... But, uh, you know, I think he wears a hat in this one, so that's good. No yeah. sweatshirts. It's outside of yeah. the sweatshirts.
2: But, yeah, that one this, character actor, the guy that plays the sniper, I can't think of his name, but
1: James. he's, a, he's,
2: yeah, he's in a lot of films, too.
1: You know, James Sicking always and forever for me is Doogie Howser's dad.
2: Oh, yeah, that's right.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: That's what it's
1: always reminded me of. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's got a good a very good uh, veteran sort of character actor cast. We should say that this film is one of many films based on the Donald D. E. Westlake, Richard Stark novels. hmm Now, he's Those part- are
2: known as Parker. That's right. Parker novels, which the Jason Statham film was Parker, which I never saw.
1: Which the split with Jim Brown as a Parker joint. The outfit, yes. John Flynn, uh, uh, br- 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 Robert Duvall joint... Uh, that, there's a lot of Parker films.
2: Yeah, they've always, but they've had a real hard time. I think this one and Payback get it the most right, the Mel Gibson film. Mm-hmm. But I think in the Mel Gibson film, is he called Parker or is he called Carter?
1: Uh, I want to say Carter, but that could be the power of suggestion.
2: Yeah, this uh, in this film, of course, he's called Walker, uh, which isn't exactly the you know Parker, obviously. So I don't know if they couldn't get the rights or what, but. They decided to call him Walker instead of Parker, which is interesting.
1: Yeah, there must have been a rights thing. But then again, if they're gonna give a writing credit to Westlake, unless he yeah, he, he walked strange. away, unless he uh, walked maybe, away from it and said, "Ooh, you know what?"
2: Maybe, okay. maybe John Borman knew he was gonna shoot a bunch of scenes yeah. and put some to like a rhythm section of uh, of uh, uh, Lee Marvin walking. Mm-hmm. So maybe they said, "Let's just go with Walker."
1: You never know, man. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's very peculiar um, what, what happened there, but um, I'm sure you know some of our friends uh, may know the answer to that. It's probably time I get my notes out.
2: Um, I'm sure there's going to be a lot more people that know a lot more about this film than we do. I yeah. mean, I know it's a seminal film for some. For some, it's a top ten film, easily. Oh, uh,
1: certainly, and the poster is very iconic, we should say.
2: Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of great variations on the poster as well, and this is the film that made Lee Marvin a star. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, from this point on, he was Lee Marvin. Now, he had worked a lot up until this point, usually playing heavies and and just character roles and stuff.
0: Yeah, but he, had.
2: he this one put him in the, well, the quote-unquote stratosphere, I guess you could say.
1: And I think, I remember hearing years ago, and I can't remember how true this is or if I'm mixing up details, but... I think Marvin was approached to make this film and he had said the only way he was going to make the film was if Boorman directed it and if Boorman had complete creative control or the only way Boorman was going to direct it is if he had Marvin and had complete creative control, something to that effect.
2: Yeah. I, I find very- it very odd now thinking about it that we've only covered two Lee Marvin films and both of them are directed by John Borman.
1: That is peculiar, certainly, considering how prolific he was and how many well respected sort of uh tough guy or kind of you know those kind of actors,
2: yeah, I mean almost all of his films from point blank on we've talked about covering pretty much at some point in time,
1: oh, big time, yeah, big time, no, oh, I know it's he's just one of those guys, you know, and I, we'll get to you know probably a handful or more of his films
2: and also we should say he's only forty three in this film, but you can already see the effects of uh, Uh, His war background, his uh, smoking, and his alcohol abuse, you can already start to see it. He looks older than 43. I'm 41, so I don't look anything... He looks
1: fucking 20 years older than you. Easy.
2: (laughs) I know. I know. He looks much older than 43. And, of course, he would be dead 20 years after this at 63.
1: That's so young. By the time
2: he got to be 63 Delta Force, he looks awful. I mean, he looks like he's about ready to die of kill over. Yep. So... It yeah. is. He he really tore his body up, you know, he really abused it, so
1: it's he did, man. He did, you know, between everything smoking and the drinking and stuff. And it's crazy, yeah, Dirty Dozen, um, which this was the same year. That's a big year for him. Dirty Dozen of Jim yeah. in sixty seven?
2: Yeah, sixty seven was the year of Lee Marvin, there's no doubt about it. Uh I should say that I don't know if this came out first and made him the star or Dirty Dozen, but either way. Cat Baloo, though, year. he
1: had done prior, which yeah. I think uh, he'd gotten a lot of acclaim. I think that even went on to win an Academy Award.
2: He won he? an Oscar for it. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. won an Oscar for Cat Baloo, and that got him noticed. But I, I think what made him a worldwide star and uh, a leading man, because in that film, you got to think he's actually a supporting actor. In a
1: lot yes, of he ways. is. That's right.
2: Uh leading man was, you know, Dirty Dozen is a, is a, is a what's the word I'm looking for?
1: Ensemble? I Guys on a mission? Yeah, it's an
2: ensemble, but he stands out.
1: Oh, he is the lead, yeah, he's the glue. Yeah, that holds
2: uh, and, and a great cast of tough guys. I mean, maybe maybe the greatest tough guy cast, pound for pound.
1: Well, let's, you know what? Because we're kind of freewheeling here, truth be told, let's take a quick look, and we'll see what we think as far as this goes. Uh, not to take away too much from the review, but um, the other one I thought of was The Great Escape.
2: Well, yeah, it's a good one, too. So
1: which, which of those two casts... Uh,
2: that's, well, I think I go Dirty Dozen though. Geez, so now, Bronson's in both. Yes, he is. But Jim Brown's in Dirty Dozen, right?
1: Yes, he is. But Steve McQueen's in Great Escape. <laughs> yeah. Shit. That's yeah. tough. That's, That's
2: tough. tough. That is but tough. Uh, Garner,
1: you got Garner.
2: Yeah, you got Garner. James Coburn. Yeah, but you got Telly Savalas.
1: Yes, you do.
2: Dirty Dozen.
1: <laughs> you do. This is true.
2: We got uh, uh, what's, his, what's the name of that big guy that played Cheyenne? I can't remember his name off the top.
1: Oh, of uh, was he German? No,
2: no, Wasn't no. He... he was real, real big cowboy oh. actor.
1: I'm thinking of the German that was in. Now I'm thinking of the German from Magnificent Seven. Mm-hmm. The German American guy. Oh, horse. <laughs> uh, horse Buchholz, was it?
2: Yeah, horse Buchholz. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now I gotta look too. Because now I gotta see. I mean, Magnificent. Um, Not Magnificent Seven. Well, that's actually a good tough guy movie, too. <laughs>
1: there you get another great ensemble, man. Throwing Yule up in the mix, there, bay.
2: We got Borgnine, Bronson, Brown, Cassavetes, who technically is not really a tough guy actor, but he's very good in Dirty Dozen.
1: Yeah, he's a guy actor.
2: Ja- yeah, Richard Jekyll, who character actor, been in many things, George Kennedy. Yeah, Robert but, Ryan. But does, does Donald
1: Pleasance of Great Escape cancel out George Kennedy?
2: <laughs> I think Donald Sutherland... And then uh, Dirty Dozen cancels out Donald Pleasants.
1: <laughs> oh, it was Donald's? Oh, that's right.
2: Clint Walker. That's the guy I was looking for. Clint Walker, Clint Walker big, burly uh, uh, cowboy actor. What
1: about Richard Attenborough? Who you got?
2: Oh, man. That's a tough one because I don't really think... Well, see, Richard Attenborough, to me, kind of fits with the John Cassavetes casting and Dirty Doesn't.
1: In that he's not a tough guy, but he's a classy kind of, well, yeah. Cassavetes is more interesting for his film stuff. He's not, I wouldn't call him classy, per se, but they're both kind of left-field tough guy.
2: So, well, yeah, and, Cass- and both of them are directors. Both of them are filmmakers yeah. of kind of more quiet pieces. So, yeah, yeah, they kind of, I don't know, man, that's a tough one. Dirty, <laughs> Dirty that is a tough one, I have to say. I,
1: I, I would probably lean the same way. I was only doing it to play a devil's advocate. I would probably lean the same way when you say Dirty Dozen because Jim Brown. Man, but it's hard to bet against Stephen McQueen. I don't know. That's a tough one. That's a, that tough, a one tough one for sure. Coburn, Maybe we should
2: say Magnificent Seven. <laughs>
1: yeah, I think we might have to go that way. We might have to go that way. Um, but anyway, uh, this film, I, I'd heard – what I was going to say was I'd heard that this film – uh, was made on the condition of someone having Boorman having complete creative control. I think it was whether it was through Marvin or through himself or through someone else. And I really feel like when I watch this film now, I look at it with a critical eye. This is a very very unique beast because it feels completely unlike most films of the time. Certainly most tough guy films. It almost feels like French New Wavey, like it's this non linear storyline and some really artistic shots and stuff that's kind of left um, left to kind of unfold uh, at its own pace. Mm-hmm. very peculiar for the time for the genre.
2: Well, we talked about this a little bit, I think when we talked on the phone last time, but it has that kind of great opening where they kind of stylize it. instead of doing freeze frames, they actually have Lee Marvin just kind of stand but still as possible. At one point, he's even hanging off a fence, and you can see his leg moving. Yeah. Uh, dangling there. But he's frozen, and you see a bird go across the sky and stuff, and it's it's this really odd feel to the film that kind of sets up the whole movie in a way, because not that there's a bunch of scenes where Marvin stops, because he really, after he gets out of the prison, he's really kind of a uh, almost like a dynamo, like a perpetual wheel or something, because he's constantly moving. The Walker character's constantly moving, like... Like a hungry feral animal, mm-hmm. and uh, it's an interesting touch to kind of give it that off kilter kind of beginning because it kind of the whole movie's kind of off kilter because of that opening. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. not really your standard hitman bad guy playing a cool film, and obviously we you know we covered the Limey. and you know the Limey pulls a lot from this film, um, with the walking and stuff. If you remember, Terrence Stamp walks a lot in the Limey.
1: And even that, even that Lee Van Cleef film we did, I think, follows this film.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, the perfect killer. The perfect killer. Yeah, yeah, yeah it does a lot. Well, I, I, I wonder sometimes if Point Blank is the beginning of the ultra cool uh, bad guy, antihero. If that's the, if it might, if that is the beginning of it.
1: Well, I had actually one of my notes was that the template is set mm-hmm. with this film.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there was something else before because invariably. Or maybe I shouldn't say that, inevitably, uh, human beings like anti heroes. Yep. So, I you mean, see their own because, flaws in them, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, Wait they do that, but they also, it's, it's a license to get away with stuff. Yes, it is. And, well, you're not uh, boxed
1: you know. into a corner with uh, the sort of saintly good guy.
2: Yeah, yeah. And not only that, but I mean, it appeals to our fantasies, right? We don't mm-hmm. watch, I mean, I watch crime films because it appeals to my fantasies of what it would be like to be a real tough guy. When in reality, I don't want to get know anywhere near that shit. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, right.
2: I don't even like being on a gun range. I get uncomfortable, oh, I okay? Yeah. So, but it's a great escape for me, no pun intended, huh. to uh to to watch these films and the anti-heroes are always what attracts me the most because like you said, they have the flaws of our our basic human being, uh, you know, that I have, you know, flaws you have flaws, I have flaws, we all have. But they also have these kind of great moments where, you know, they get to be real badasses with guns. And and they also get to do the things that we wish we could do, like revenge and things like that, you know? Yep. And Stuff that so- we know is socially unacceptable most oh, times. certainly. But there's not a day that goes by that somebody doesn't cut you off in traffic and you're like, you motherfucker.
1: Oh, I know. <laughs> I know. It's true. And, yeah, absolutely. I forget what I was going to say in that respect. I'll move on. Yeah, no, I agree, though. 100%. 100%. It's, uh, it certainly does that. Um, I think this film looks good. Uh, I don't know. It's a little grainy. A little grainy. Oh, you're talking about the Blue River
2: transfer? Yes. Yeah.
1: Um, the only reason. Yeah, it's,
2: th- not, it's not perfect.
1: It's not. Now, I know some people, like, you know, Jonathan Hurstberg, you know, big guy into the. The, you know, I think films not being overly DNR'd and really the care that goes into a film being restored, you know, and looking filmic still. But I feel like a lot of 60s films look great on blue because of how cleanly they were made. You know, you didn't have a lot of stark, uh, overlit stuff like the 80s. So I feel like the 60s, and they weren't overly colorful like some of the 50s stuff, like the Technicolor stuff. So I feel like the 60s is one of the areas, eras that, because the way films were made, it's easier to make it look good on blue. I mean, and when they do look good, they look great. Because, like I said, I think '60s that era of filmmaking really lends itself well to the, the format of Blu-ray. Yeah, <laughs> Lee Marvin up in this piece.
2: Yeah. Sorry about that. I just turned on the uh, the camera on my uh, Skype phone because I was trying to look at you.
1: Oh yes, yes.
2: <laughs> you tell me you're recording in. Uh uh, leather and that's it so that's I, it
1: know, man a Naga Hide you didn't say, yes. where,
2: it, you didn't say where it was
1: though <laughs> uh i do have to say just to finalize something i will give it to the dirty dozen because we forgot to mention borgnine robert yes. weber and robert ryan
2: yeah no, know it, it's it, it's more and more as we're going along here it's pretty much a cut and dry case
1: yeah it certainly is certainly is but um anyway uh We get Alcatraz. There's a lot of really great still stuff in this. Um, Yeah, yeah. And it's a well-shot film, too. I I think it's it's interesting to see a time when Tough Guy Cinema takes care to be artistic and philosophical, too, which Mm. you would see in – like, Ghost Dog, I think, owes a lot to this film.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's fun when uh, directors like John Foreman, Jim Jarmusch, uh, these kind of guys tackle genre movies. I think that 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 makes it that much more fun and interesting because, or like Scorsese, or yeah,
0: just
2: your are really talented filmmakers. That's not to take anything away from your, you know, your B movie filmmakers, your Bud Boddickers, your whatever. Yeah, you know, we can name a million of those guys. That's not to take anything away from those guys because most of those guys I like more than the A listers. Yep. but. I do think there's something to be said from a really talented filmmaker uh, when they go into genre and mm-hmm. uh, they kind of manipulate it and kind of play with it a lot. And they kind of understand more in my in my opinion, they kind of understand more of the tropes and what they need. But at the same time, they kind of give it a new kind of a, a flavor, so to speak.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Because Borman,
2: Borman's a filmmaker that's very interesting because very. he's the kind of guy that would always kind of see, – he seems to me like he always swings for the fence. And and like I said, I've said about on Facebook with about Brian De Palma and several other filmmakers, I'd rather a filmmaker swing like that and miss seven out of ten times. But if mm-hmm. he gives me three that I'll never forget, I'm okay with that. And Borman's giving me hell in the Pacific. He's giving me point blank. He's giving me deliverance. Yeah, uh, Zardoz, right? He's, well, yeah, he's giving me Zardoz, which is a, a bit of a whiff, but in, a, in an interesting way. He's giving a me Excalibur. Voice. Yeah, he's giving me Excalibur. He's giving me Emerald Forest, I believe, with Powers Booth. Yeah. He's giving me some uh, He's giving me some very interesting films, and he's giving me some real crazy, wacky ones. Exorcist
1: 2, we should say. Hey. <laughs> yeah. Wait, so he does really swing for the fences.
2: Yeah, he really does swing for it. I mean, he goes for it, and I admire that. Unfortunately, I think it hurt his career, ultimately. Yeah. But well, when you do
1: Zardoz and Exorcist 2 back-to-back, and I love both films, yeah. but you are, in, you know...
2: Didn't Frankenheimer stu- come in and finish off Exorcist 2? I didn't think Borman he did. Get, yeah, didn't he get yeah. kicked off of it, I think?
1: But then Borman came back with Excalibur, so,
2: you know. Yeah, and I, I got to say, just for the record, we've never covered it, but I got to say for the record, man, Zardoz is easily... If he was to make a top ten, what the fuck was anybody smoking? How, about did, the, how,
1: how did the studio greenlight this?
2: How did Sean Connery agree to do it?
1: Well, I think there was a tie in there where I, can't, I heard this again. I heard a story about this where he—I can't remember what it was. There was a reason he did it. Like he couldn't. I don't know. I'd heard something about it though, but uh, that's an interesting one I've always wanted to cover on the show.
2: Lazaros. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, We'll get, oh, we'll yeah. get to that.
1: At some we'll point. get to that. I always love seeing brave souls dressed up as. Uh, Zed for, for Halloween.
2: Yeah, yeah, there's there's always those guys, right? There's those guys that uh, get out there and they do it. It kind of blows my mind.
1: It does blow my mind. Where do you find boots like that in the day and age?
2: <laughs> I don't know. I think you got to manufacture that shit. I don't I think, think you, you do. Can... Man, I... I bet you CDR code, his,
1: his girl's... I'm looking at... Uh... <laughs> very very um crafty. Like, she's very uh, skilled. I think she yeah. could make him a pair of boots like that.
2: I'm looking at uh Borman's uh, filmography and uh there is a lot of good stuff in here. I forgot about uh Beyond Rangoon is okay, but I tell you what is really good, the <laughs> general with uh Gleason, uh Brend- Brendan Gleason and John Voight. I high uh, recommend.
1: I don't know that I've seen it, but I'm in just based on those two.
2: Yeah, it's really really good. It was really it was already the last great film he made. But he's got twenty eight films, but I would only say maybe well, I mean still better than most. I'd say he's probably got five <laughs> near masterpieces in there though if not masterpieces I arguably think that Deliverance is one of the great films of the 70s
1: it is it absolutely is and it's very important it's a very mm-hmm. important film very important no, so I'm Borman's sure.
2: always kind of held his own with tough guy actors I really think about he's worked with Burt Reynolds he's worked with Marvin a couple times Toshiro Mifune Brendan yeah. Gleeson Brendan Gleeson I think is a the actor that would have thrived in the 70s oh yeah and Eurocrime, forget about it. You mentioned Brenda Gleason in those Eurocrime films, him and Mario Adorf as buddy the cops.
1: Smacking dudes around. <laughs> that would have been impressive. That
2: would have been amazing. Uh, I'm sorry, we keep getting sidetracked. This is a very strange show, so
1: it is. I think we're both tired and punchy and you know, kinda of rolling around here. Um, I think that uh I gotta ask you, Ed, I'm gonna digress here, but it was organic to the, my notes. A film that this is reminiscent of in more than a few ways, but I think is more A to B than this film. Sitting Target with Ollie Reed and Ian McShane, or this?
2: Oh, which one do I like more? Yeah. Mm. Um. Uh, man, I hate those kind of questions. It's tough. Uh, yeah, it is tough because I gotta, you know, I haven't seen Sitting Target in, uh, in a long time. Uh, well, I because go. I haven't. Yeah, because I haven't seen Setting Target in a long time, I'd probably have to go with point blank. But see, that's really not fair to the Target film because, like I said, I haven't watched it in ages, so I couldn't tell you. But I, I think I like this – really like I, I really like Lee Marvin in this film. I like him more in the film than I actually like the film. Uh, I would I mean, agree the film with is, Yeah, the film's good, very, very good. Mm-hmm. But I think Marvin is such a – he's so charismatic and kind of remarkable in his – Non acting in this movie—it kind of blows me away. There's a scene in this film where he literally just sits there, while this ex-girlfriend just kind of goes off. hmm And it is some of the best acting I think I've ever seen. And he never says a word.
1: <laughs> yeah, he is quite good in the film, and I would agree that he's better than the film. And not just the film's not good. Yeah. But it was a—you know—it was a different time, and he's. Yeah. He's quite good. And yeah, I think this film's less A to B, and there's a lot, there's a lot of stylish things and and um, intellectual things in the film. Um, man, I'll tell you, rule number one, you don't fuck with a man's girl. Oh. Uh,
2: <laughs> Are you a fan of the Gibson film?
1: Uh, it's okay. I, I like yeah. it enough. Um, I'd seen it once with my dad when it came out. On, I want to say on VHS. but um, And then I'd seen a little bit of it on TV. That's what... Uh, payback you said pay yeah,
2: yeah yeah the director's yeah. cut's better the, the, actually they released a couple of years ago maybe it was five or ten years ago they released the director's cut of it and it is much better than the uh, one you probably saw
1: yeah because i saw it it's darker yeah so that yeah because i remember he he makes a lot of phone calls to people in that i think like,
2: he calls, <laughs> a lot of payphones. <laughs> a lot of
1: payphones. yeah 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 um I have to see it again. I do wish I do like Gibson. I wish he worked we, better
2: Yeah, stuff. we give it time. That's that's really the kind of role Gibson's like his best in. You know, we talked about yeah. that when we did Edge of when we we didn't do it, but we both saw Edge of Darkness
0: uh, oh, because
2: yes. of uh, because how g- really good Gibson was in Edge of Darkness, even though the film wasn't that great, he was exceptional in it. So. Yeah.
1: Uh, forgive me. Um, I think we're not film- even
2: talking about Point Blank at this point. <laughs>
1: Fuck, I know we're kind of all over the place. Uh, I think the film, one of the things I like about the film is how slow mo and experimental it is at times. It's just a very different beast. And I know we keep saying that, but I think that's one of the strengths of the film.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: that really works you, know, well. you know
2: a scene that I always think odd in this movie? What's that? The uh, Meat Cute scene. Yeah. Where the guys, all the sailors, are around the girl. Mm-hmm. It feels like a prelude to a film Zom would watch
1: totally and, <laughs> it totally is
2: so uh, and that's an inside joke but i mean it really does feel like it's a prelude to a really bad <laughs> gang rape getting ready to happen you know what yeah.
1: i mean yeah yeah yeah
2: They're or gang
1: really bang totally. would be a better yeah. choice yeah. of words
2: well i don't know the look on their faces i think it looks more like a gang rape but i understand what you're yeah, saying yeah yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> just uh, yeah so no one thinks we're we're being
2: yeah innocent. no i'm not making fun of it but it is really a strange if you watch it if like if if you used to walk in and that's the scene you see mm-hmm you're thinking whomever's watching this man you've never seen it you're thinking whomever's watching this film is watching is watching something totally different than what this film is
1: oh yeah no that's true that's very true
2: <laughs> and it's really weird
1: um the camera i can't remember who shot this i'd have to look it up but they take care to shoot a lot of stuff at really bizarre angles
2: yeah, almost like Dutch angles. Or I was bad about
1: bad yeah, <laughs> I was about to say that actually, as a matter of fact. Um, so I think that's
2: uh, again, I think that kind of goes with that kind of off balance thing I was talking about with the beginning, uh, uh, kind of how he he kind of sets you off balance from the get go, and then like the film, like it's almost like the film itself is kind of. I don't know, kind of drunk or something. It's kind of like it's a little off. Something's always a little off.
1: I think that's a good point. Dutch angles would lend themselves to us being in the state of mind that Marvin is.
2: Yeah, Philip Lothrop shot this, and he also shot uh, Lolly Madonna X.
1: Oh, interesting.
2: And a few other, and well, yeah, quite a few other films. Shot eighty-six films. Shot Hard Times as well.
1: Wow, great. Um,
2: the Marvin film, but yeah, he he shot a lot of shit. Shot Deadly Friend of all things
1: too, oh, man, which I love. Which came up oddly in the Adam Wingard Q and A at the guest. So.
2: Yeah, he's actually actually uh, what's call it? This guy, this is a film, uh, cinematographer. He's been on he's been on our show a few times. He's uh, shot. They shoot horses, don't they? Rapping? Don't they? Yeah, yeah, don't they? <laughs> and well, uh, Madonna, like I said, quite a yeah, quite a bit of stuff. Traveling executioner. Executionary shot. shot. all the great. Oh, 70s cool. Films.
1: Very cool. Um. I think that a lot of the daytime exteriors look really great. I don't know what the budget was for this film. I can't imagine it was huge. It's an example of a director who's, who knows what to shoot, what he's going for, and he's pretty mm. effective in getting it. Um, True Lies. I never realized this this time. True Lies lifted the car ride, I think, from this film a little bit.
2: said it was shot for $3 million, which which uh, that's pretty high for '67, actually.
1: Three million sixty seven. dollars yeah, maybe so.
2: That's, that's pretty high for, well, I mean, I don't know for sure, but I would say 3000000 is a pretty good budget for a 67. Yeah,
1: it's healthy, yeah, that's true.
2: I so might we'll to see what Dirty Dozen was shot for.
1: <laughs> oh, man, you know how stupid I am and how tired I am? When you said Dirty Dozen, I chuckled because in my head I heard you say Dirty Dancing. <laughs> I was like, why is he comparing Dirty Dancing to Point Blank? But, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I have to say that this film has the most annoying Ray Charles, James Brown love child in the history of cinema.
2: Oh, you're talking about that band, right?
1: Oh, man, that guy's terrible.
2: The, my, my note is it's possible this might be the most obnoxious house band in cinema history.
1: Oh. he
2: doesn't, <laughs> Certainly, Certainly for me, it's one of the worst. I mean, I couldn't it's wait so to get out of that nightclub.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's pretty dreadful. It is bad. It's, it is. Yeah, it's not good. Um, I mean,
2: I could get anything. I mean, I'm a op- very open-minded music fan, yeah. but I could get nothing out of that.
1: Yeah, they really le- leaned on a couple character ticks of James Brown's and tried to make <laughs> them work. Just peculiar, to say the least. Um, what does this say?
2: I can't. Oh, that says sounds... it's a moment of silence <laughs>
1: yeah no kidding uh, i like the color palette in this film it's another thing i think that there was a very intentional um decision to shoot things a specific way in terms of how they were framed and the colors that were in the background or foreground be it with characters and, and wallpaper or exteriors and what the characters were wearing or what multiple characters were wearing for that matter mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a lot of uh, a lot of decisions were made in that regard um What else we do we... Actually, I, ironically, I talked about Cassavetes in The New Wave because it feels a little bit like that. Um,
2: this does look like a Cassavetes film in a lot of ways. Yeah,
1: it does, man. There's the least convincing nude body fall in the history of cinema.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty bad one.
1: There's a few bad body falls in this, man.
2: Yeah, I got to say, though, yeah, the... Uh, Whatchamacallit, the... I. I I like the scene. I like the way everybody reacts to the body fall. (laughs) Yeah. It's pretty funny. I don't know. I got a chuckle out of it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty brutal. Um, Who says that? One of the guys says, is it Carol O'Connor maybe? One of the guys like wags a finger at uh, Walker and says, you're a very bad man, Walker. Oh, it's Vernon. It's Vernon.
2: Yeah, I think it is.
1: Good old Vernon. Uh,
2: I got to say, Marvin, uh, at one point in this time, he's giving Henry Silver a run for his money with that robe action.
1: Yeah, for real.
2: He's got that short robe on, a little yellowish. He's mm-hmm. going for it, man.
1: <laughs> yeah, he is. He's bringing it. He's bringing it. There's um, some iconic L.A. stuff in this film. Speaking yeah. Iconic L.A. And I have to think, yeah, you had mentioned Elime. I think this kind of falls in a little bit with that.
2: Yeah, yeah, it'd be a great double bill if somebody's interested in watching two films that are similar back-to-back, this and alimey here and evidently I think there's a commentary on the disc and on this Blu-ray as well. Yeah. Uh, of Steven Soderbergh and John Borman talking about this film. So I mean so Soderbergh, Soderbergh's very much a fanboy and uh he always has good commentaries on other people's movies as well as his own. So I'm looking forward to listening to that at some point. Sure I should be. say that there's a great metaphor too with the uh way he shoots that empty bed. I really like oh, that That's kind I of like love a metaphor. That. Yeah. I love that. 'Cause you know, I mean, anybody worth their salt will realize there's nobody in the bed after that first shot. But the fact that the rage builds up and that he's shooting this empty bed and it's like, you know, he's shooting his past and there's I mean that that's what a John Borman's gonna bring to a genre movie that, you know, um I don't know, I'm trying to think. Arch Hall's not gonna bring to a genre movie, you know? So this the little touches yeah. like that, the kind of stuff I'm talking about. You know, uh, is that all? Your, is that all your notes, pretty much?
1: Yeah, I was gonna mention something about Jarmusch just being a son of Lee Marvin, as they say, but it's not really all that important.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, there's a great story. I remember that one time George Jarmusch was talking; he was in a bar or something, and a guy walks up to him and says, uh, "Asked him if he's in the Sons of Lee Marvin club," and said he uh, didn't really like it. And Jarmusch said he couldn't figure out where he'd seen this guy before, and then he realized it was Lee Marvin's son, Chris. No way they kind of confronted him saying they didn't really like this sons of Lee Marvin shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, but Germish does look like Lee Marvin a lot if you look at him. He really does kind of have a He Lee looks Marvin like
1: the kind of him. slight more introspective um, beatnik version
2: at the time. Yeah. Well, he's not that
1: he's a beatnik, but you know, he yeah. looks more like artistic and you know.
2: I've that's... never actually seen a picture of Chris uh, Marvin, so I don't more know what have he I. looks like.
1: I have to say, can we say since we're talking about Lee Marvin? I really feel like he's underappreciated uh, as a comedic actor. He had some timing.
2: Oh yeah, you've never seen? Uh, have you ever seen uh, *Donovan's Reef*, the uh, John Wayne, Lee Marvin movie?
1: Nope.
2: That's I think is John Ford's last film, and uh, they're very good together. In it. The film's not great, but they together in it are hilarious. Both of them have great comic timing. So you'd be surprised. Yeah, check it out when you get. To oh it man,
1: sometimes. I'd I would like to see that. That'd be. Yeah, cool.
2: it's it's good. It's fun. It's it's not it's not a great movie, but it, it is fun. I don't really have a whole lot more to add. I like the way the uh, story wraps up. There's some strange foreplay in here. Uh, <laughs> some weird stuff. I don't get into it because it For might be. Sure it is. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm sort thinking: does Alcatraz ever been on a, a location of a film we we've, we've covered? If not, I don't know how that's not possible. It's like one of the most filmed locations in the world.
1: It is, and it is iconic, and it's iconic for a reason. And they build up the mythology, and they talk about the mythology. in this, And they do a good job of it.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, Alcatraz is, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe top five most cinematic structures (laughs) in cinema.
1: Yeah, it's got to be up there for sure.
2: I mean, even people who don't know what it is know what it is.
1: And again, the... Um, and I can't even keep my eyes open. I don't even know where i was fucking going with it. Good lord. We'll just roll. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, and I are struggling this week. Um, but yeah, I really enjoy to revisit of the film. I do gotta say, watching it now with more of a critical eye, I do find it kind of, in moments, it kind of lags.
1: It's French New Wave for French New Wave's sake at times, for better or worse. Yeah
2: yeah yeah and sometimes it's for worse i mean yes. i think it I it's not that. perfect in no way shape or no. form i think this is a very good movie uh my score will reflect that but i don't think after it's going to get to a certain number for me to be considered even close to a masterpiece and
0: yeah
2: i know for some people that the score i'm going to give it's going to be considered masterpiece i do think it's a really fine film maybe one of the <laughs> better film but certainly one of the better films in john mormon's uh filmography and certainly one of lee marvin's um uh, most important films um but I do think it's slightly flawed, and uh, you know I just think I don't know I don't I never really feel like there's really a strong counterweight for Marvin's character. He's such a force of nature in the movie yeah. that I don't think John Vernon or Carol O'Connor no. or anybody can really compete with him. No, and uh, it's one of those things we talk about where the heavy. Sometimes the heavy has to almost be the star or even better than the hero.
1: Yeah, more memorable because it has to make that clash
2: uh, yeah. worthwhile. Or at least be something so scummy that the audience is really going for it. I never really understood <laughs> what the yeah. organization was.
1: I'll tell you, you know who Lee Marvin should have taken on? Is <laughs> Richard that? Lynch, Invasion USA
2: era Richard Lynch? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> would have been amazing, yeah. Oh, well, it's standard. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> That's the kind of bad guy you want. For real. But, I mean, in fairness to Borman, though, a presence like Marvin, really hard to cast that counterbalance uh, against him. I think he did great when he did Toshiro Mafuni in Hell in the Pacific. Oh,
1: perfect, yeah, absolutely.
2: There, there you got such heavy actors going against each other. It works, but in this, you know... It's the the unseen organization. That's what we keep hearing. The organization, the organization. Then, you know, that that can work. But I just think with Marvin's performance, I think it needed to be something at least a little stronger. It didn't need to be. It didn't need to be Richard Lynch and in Invasion USA. <laughs> that would have been great. But it didn't need to no. be that that big. No, but no, it needed it to be. I don't know. It needed to be something. And I just don't feel like it was enough of something. You know. So, I think that's where. It, if it falls on its face for me, that's where it falls on its face. And really, the Vernon character—I mean, I'm not going to give it away—but I mean, that doesn't—that storyline doesn't sustain itself long enough. This is for, true. For it to be a, a driver, so I—I I don't know. That's probably the issues I had. Yeah. But it was nice seeing Angie Dixon put on her dress back on and silhouette and watching her, uh, as the men would say, jiggle wiggle, jiggle, jiggly, jiggly. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> that was a nice moment. I had to rewind that moment. I forgot all about it. She is a good-looking one. But that's all my notes.
1: Nice. Uh, make or break. Um, gosh, I didn't even write one down.
2: I can tell you right now, the make or break for me was really tough on this one, because there's a lot of great scenes in the film.
1: Yeah. I'm going to kind of take an easy way out and say, I think, the opening uh, in that. Oh, okay. It sets the table, like once it starts to unfold a bit, it sets the table to show you this is very much an unconventional film in terms of its narrative, the way it delivers the narrative, uh, technique, you know, from a you know, technical standpoint. Uh, I'm going to, so I'm going to say that. Um, my MBT is... How left field this film is in a genre that at the time was still working through kind of very stoic uh, John Wayne-esque figures that move in a very linear fashion. Yeah, tough yeah. guy cinema. This is an evolution and a next step, marrying French New Wave with uh, of Europe, of French New Wave of Europe. Fuck, of course it's of Europe. It's French. Um, good lord. Uh, marrying the French New Wave, man, I could just blather on even with my eyes closed. Uh, French New Wave with American cinema of the time and marrying them into what this film can, can, is. Uh, my score for the film, um, gosh, I, I would say a 7.75 out of 10. I don't yeah. think this is a masterpiece. I do think it's a flawed film. I feel like, as you said, I feel like Vernon and um, Donald uh, O'Connor. O'Connor, right? Carol O'Connor.
2: Carol, Carol O'Connor. There
1: you go. Oh, man. Now I'm thinking of all sorts of different people. You know, the guy that did uh, the Rollerblade 7, Donald uh, – <laughs> I don't know what his name is. Donald something. Donald Zen Filmmaker. Um, Scott Shaw. Scott no, There's a Donald – Donald Glover? No.
2: No. Not Donald Glover.
1: <laughs> oh, man. This is going off the rails. Quick. 7.75. Nice. All right. Donald Jackson. Uh, <laughs>
2: My MVT is, or my make or break is, I'm gonna go with the scene where the uh, the ex-wife or the ex-girlfriend really spills her guts, and um, Marvin just sits there the whole time while she's just spilling. Yes. And I like that whole sequence. I like the shooting of the bed. I like. uh, That is a great, great sequence. Yeah, and it's just really good stuff. Um, You can see the rage in uh, the Marvin character, that kind of hidden rage that he that he channeled so well like the old tough guy actors do uh my mvt is marvin uh i like borman a lot i would give it to him but uh i think borman's made much better films and uh yes. even though this is you know a, a strong film for me because i'm about a half a point higher than you um i don't think it i do think it is flawed i do think it, it meanders when it doesn't need to meander yes. a few times it kind of just it just doesn't move when it should move, and uh, maybe that's part of the game. But I don't know. I got—I'm not the biggest French New Wave guy, anyway. No, because of some of that stuff. But uh, uh, I do appreciate it. Just don't love it. Yes. And this—this—this uh, this, this is the same way. So my score is an eight point two five out of nice. ten. I do think it's a very good film, and I do think it's worth owning. I agree. And I think if you're a Marvin fan, you definitely—if you haven't seen it, you should see it. I can't remember what the Silver and Gold Boys gave this. Nor can I remember I. they reviewed it, but I can't remember what they gave it.
1: Yeah, nor can I. But again, I, I want to stress what you said. I feel like as we've talked about some films, I think the film's more important than I'm than my score yeah. would, would would indicate. You know, it is a very good film. I will admit, I was fatigued from uh, the day when I watched it.
2: No, uh, but been in, in, in fairness, some of the most influential films are very flawed films. I think flawed films are as important as. Perfectly made films because I mean, from this flawed film, I think we got a lot of masterpieces.
1: Yes, we certainly certainly did, and a lot of different countries riffing on that, still riffing on that. South yep. Korea still riffing on that. A lot of people are. Yep. Um, and I was thinking of, of course, Donald G. Jackson of the Rollerblade Seven. Oh, I thought I said, did I say Donald Jackson? You did say
2: Donald Jackson toward the end there. Yeah, you just forgot I, the G.
1: I did forget the G, which is essential. I'll tell you, that film's got a cast and a half. Scott Shaw, Frank Stallone, Karen Black, Don Stroud, William Smith, Joe Estevez.
2: Man, how have we not covered that yet? How
1: have we not with a 2.0 on IMDb? (laughs) Zen filmmaking at its... uh,
2: I'm sure that's an incorrect score.
1: That has to be. (laughs) Times four, at least. Times four. So we're going to take a break. We're going to go put on our rollerblades uh, so we can review uh, Donald G. Jackson's Rollerblade 7 uh, and Motel Hell. We'll
2: be right back. Are you tired of film podcasts where the hosts exist in a constant, blissful state of agreement? I mean, the main, the main characters are two of the dullest main characters I've ever encountered in any film. Well, you're in luck. Let me introduce you to Chinstroke and Punta. One, he's an ex film student with a penchant for David Lynch and Art Cinema. The other is a man on the street. Listen, in perplexed and horrified terror, as we tear apart one film a week. It just
1: really—it's not visually striking.
2: No. no. Just just getting confirmation. It's it's just thats the third time, though. I mean, is this is on, you can find us at chinstrikerversuspenser.dot.horomatic.com.
1: So come and share okay. the victory. If you could.
2: Any man in film, who would it be and why? My answer is Lance Henriksen. He he wouldn't tell. He looks like somebody. (laughs) He looks like somebody who would keep a secret.
1: this is The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. I am one of your punch-trunk hosts, Large William. Across the border for me is my good friend, Sammy. That's the second time I've said this on the show. It might. Yeah, are, we
2: doing the the, are we doing the semi-intro over the second time? This is actually the third time we're
1: doing this Maybe semi. even the fourth time. <laughs> Ninth time's a charm for the GTMC.
2: Yes.
1: Uh, next up on the docket is a film that, um, if I may break... Uh, formula a bit and just uh, pick your brain here motel hell 1980 uh why did you pick this film
2: uh well i mean this is uh this was i like to pick films that i rented quite a bit growing up uh first of all for the revisit uh of course uh second of all because a lot of times with these films it's great to see them so clear. This, this film actually looks really good on Blu-ray. It
1: looks really good on Blu-ray.
2: <laughs> yeah, it really does. So, Shadow Factory did a really good job with this one. Um, uh, and I'd never seen it look this good. As a matter of fact, I don't remember ever seeing as much detail in the garden, quote-unquote, the garden scene.
1: Cabbage Patch Kids saw.
2: Yeah, this time. I mean, I'm used to seeing it on a murky VHS. Now I'm used to seeing it on something like this. So. I never saw this on laser disc if it ever came out, or DVD. So this is the first time I've watched this since VHS, and uh, I was interested in it. I was interested in some of the special features on the disc, which I haven't got around to yet. And um, I, I like Rory Calhoun. Uh, he's an interesting guy, uh, not a very nice gentleman. Uh, I think I may have talked about him a little bit when we did uh, the Angel film, Avenging Angel. But I know, you know, he's a cowboy actor and stuff. But you know, notorious for being a bit of a, uh, a bit of a Misogynist stuff, stuff like that. Oh, um, seriously, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he's a pretty popular guy. I mean, he's a good-looking guy in his young years. Oh man, I'll tell you, he was you. only fifty-seven when he made this movie, but he looks this film same thing as Marvin. These old guys, they didn't know how to, they didn't know how to take care of themselves.
1: <laughs> well, no, because he looks well uh, beyond his years. I'll tell you, in a moment of serendipity, one of Calhoun's last credits was "Rollerblade Warriors," taken by force, directed by Donald G. Jackson. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, Rory uh, had an interesting career. He did a lot of B westerns and stuff. He kind of started out. He he kind of had this like mix where he kind of looked like uh, Rock Hudson crossed with like Victor Mature and people like that. Yeah, very dark, kind of heavy looks and stuff. And I think he did some Gladiator movies. I can't remember, but he's an interesting guy and kind of an overlooked Hollywood matinee idol and stuff. But this yeah. is, believe it or not, uh, you know, one of his best performances. I think he's actually really good in this as Farmer Vincent. So as do I. Um, but really, it just come down to that. It came down to I hadn't seen Motel Hell for probably 20 years, and I thought, you know, this will be fun to see. And it was kind of a. It's always nice when I pick one and I think, well, certainly we'll see Motel Hell. Who hasn't seen Motel Hell? Right. You know, I know he loves the genre as much as I have. Certainly, he's seen Motel Hell. But then when you tell me, oh, by the way, I've never seen Motel Hell, I'm like, whoa, well, that's an added bonus. <laughs>
1: yeah, it definitely is. It's when I remember the the VHS cover for. Pretty fondly, I think all of us do. Again, as I'd mentioned yeah. in the intro, which no one heard except you and I. Yeah. Um, very iconic. Now, I I always used to mix this up. There's another cover that had a big dude in overalls and a beard and long hair on the cover. Ooh.
2: Oh, uh, your echo? Sorry.
1: Oh no, I saw Sammy there on the photo on the uh-huh. video, dear <laughs>
2: Did you see me for a second there? Yeah. <laughs> cool. Uh, I didn't know that worked. Chapeau. Yeah, I didn't know that worked. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I hit that button every now and then with my face. Man,
1: that that Silver oh. Gold Cave is well lit.
2: <laughs> yeah, know. <laughs> they put a lot of fluorescent lighting in here. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, well, they, oh, what uh, cover was that? I think you're talking about a movie called Slaughterhouse.
1: Maybe I am. I used to mix up Slaughterhouse's cover with Humongous's cover and with Motel Hell. Yeah. Because yeah. I was about four, five, six years old. You know they all kind of lump together in my head. Um, let me synopsize this, and I'll get into it. Yeah. I think you said you you're going to have me lead on both, since uh, since because of your situation, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, that'd be great.
1: Ooh, I think there's a delay again. Oh no! Oh no! We're good <laughs> because you responded to okay. that pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Motel Hell, rated R, 1980. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Farmer Vincent kidnaps unsuspecting travelers Do we want to really get into this?
2: Not too much
1: I don't think we need to, this is the most spoilerific synopsis in the history of cinema
2: Yeah, I don't think we need to get into it too far
1: So here's what I will say about this film It's always fascinating when one or both of us see a film from the era that a lot of people well, like us, grew up in and it's a film that has a lot of love because and let's face it rightly or wrongly and whether this is all that the film relies on or not relies on, but there's some films that you've had, you and I have a great conversations about that we often wonder how big they would be if the weight of nostalgia um, wasn't on them. Yes. So to see this film for the first time now allows me to look at it with a completely critical eye and not allow my vision to be colored by the birthday party I went to, when I saw it on cable, I was seven, re-rented it. None of those things are going to color it. So I always find those very interesting.
2: Yeah, very I do too. And I find it interesting to revisit things that are colored by nostalgia because I remember this film being terrifying.
0: Why
2: you that? As a, as a 41-year-old man, uh, I can see the satire more. I don't Absolutely. think it's terrifying. I think the idea is terrifying. Yes, the film itself is not terrifying. No. But, uh, yeah, I can see the satire. I can see more of what I could not see as a 20 year old man yeah. or younger.
1: Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Um, this, uh, I don't know, there's a whole lot of people. I mean, Roy Kelly, when we talked about, um, we should say uh, Nancy Parsons. Yes.
0: Yeah.
1: Who's, of course, born in Lake Minnetonka. Yeah, uh, she's known for Porky's. She pulls something through a, a tiled wall.
2: I like, yeah, yeah. I like to see her like Minnetonka's.
1: Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> no. She's of uh, I'm
2: being facetious a little bit and stuff, yeah. but it is funny to think she's born there, of all places. For real, but yeah, man. she's Beulah Ballbreaker, Ballbreaker, uh, very famous character. And uh, you might hear some music for a second here. I just walked into the uh, the party section of the cave nice and uh, they got some they got some crazy stuff going on here man the, you got horns going off you got hip hop music going man never and seen so much, so, so much dancing going on here Zom's
1: just grinding the blue off someone's skinny jeans tonight boy
2: yeah yeah he is yeah
1: he's got I'm his glad. shirt he's off he's got that
2: gold bond that gold bond covered frog Come, we talked about yeah, in that intro out. nobody's gonna hear
1: <laughs> and there was some good material in there man it's such a heartbreak
2: I <laughs> know uh, yeah, it was it was some good material yeah <laughs>
1: Um, but yeah, so she's in it, and I have to say, I think she's quite good in the film.
2: I'm yeah, no, guessing. she she is. She's really good in the film, actually. Uh, I, and that's surprising because I don't remember her being as good as she was. But I really think Farmer Vincent and her are uh, really the uh, really the, kind of the glue of the film. They really work well yeah. together. Her they, and Roy Calhoun.
1: They really do. Paul Link, uh, as the younger <laughs> brother, he's he's fine. He's fine. But yeah. I do really feel like Calhoun gives a really good performance. Parsons gives a she's good. Nina Calhoun actual.
2: gives a Calhoun gives a better performance. It's similar to point blank, but even more so. Calhoun gives a better performance in a film <laughs> That you wouldn't expect that kind of performance from.
1: Well, and it also feels like one of the reasons that Tourist Trap is elevated is because Chuck Connors, an old pro, delivers yeah. an amazing performance.
2: Agreed. I watched Tourist Trap when I was uh, with the gang out in uh, the, uh, the camping thing we did uh, a couple of years ago. Yep. And I remember thinking to myself again, I remember thinking, wow, you know, this film... It's not a great movie, but Chuck Connors really elevates the material. He nails
1: it. Yeah, and it it became a favorite, and a big part of that is his performance for me. But Calhoun is really exceptional in this film. I'll be forthright in saying that.
2: He's the right mix of funny and sinister and sweet.
1: Yes, yes, yes. Yes Yes to all three. Um, It's ironic with all the midnight rides you've been doing, uh, because I have Wolfman Jack do the outro, and, of course, Wolfman Jack shows up... uh, this I'm going to
2: need that magazine, baby.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> he goes, right. oh, mercy. I love him, man. I love him. I know. he is amazing. He's great he, to see him. He's
1: got some, uh, some pretty good comedic timing. I feel like this film, <laughs> it, it's well-documented, my disdain of horror comedy. And while I wish – I think this is a, a horrific enough premise that mm-hmm. it could – if it was executed with a very straight face – Oh, man, this could have been amazing as far as just straight horror.
2: Yeah, it's an interesting film, too, because it does it does have a couple. It, it reminded me of The Town the Dreaded Sundown. Not as much over the top with those comedic moments, but yeah, it reminded yeah. me of that, where there's a couple moments in this film where I'm like, well, you didn't really have to go there. That's right. You know, and they go there and stuff. There's also a really weird moment where the Paul Link character, you know, he's hitting on this girl. It's kind of been saved to maybe inherit this farm is what, you know, you'll find out. And, and he's almost like going to rape her.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's a very, uh, very peculiar, very <laughs> peculiar. But
2: uh, and he's like, you know, he's like a sad sack after she won't give it up. He's like, Oh, come on.
1: Oh, I know. And that's and the weird thinking, thing. Jesus. <laughs> the tone with this film is something that it's weird because I feel like if in the right hands, this premise could have been like an all time great, um, not to say that it dropped the ball, because I still think this is a really fun film. And I think one of the things that really impresses me about this film is this is 1980. Now, yeah. there's another pretty famous slasher that came out in 1980 and only preceded this by a few months. Yeah, yeah. And to save everyone from you know Googling that, of course, Friday the 13th, <laughs> the Sean Cunningham jam right. is what I was referring to, and was, as you knew. So I think it's very curious that this came out at the same time for all intents and purposes, I mean, people can say Black Friday, and it's not or Black Friday, Black Christmas. Yeah. Uh, but Friday the 13th was one that really jumped off the genre, that really, like, the gold rush started.
2: Yeah, and I've always had this theory that Friday the 13th, it got so big, so quick, because it was the perfect timing, uh, it was the perfect... Idea, the camp kids, run you know, the camp uh, movies, it was that yeah. title. Friday the 13th, regardless of what you think of the series, but the title Friday the 13th is a great title.
1: It's evocative and mysterious, and it comes yeah. at a time when more kids are being sent to camp yeah. because more parents had to have two incomes, Yeah. right? Yeah. So they're sending kids off to camp.
2: It was um, a – I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but, I mean, if it's like a perfect storm scenario. I think it came oh, like,
1: along um, – like uh, the, the Zeitgeist? The, the yeah, course, yeah. Zeitgeist I think it just and...
2: hit right at the right moment. Yeah. Because I'll be the first one to tell you, I don't like Friday the 13th as much as other Friday the 13th in the oh, series. Oh, I agree. I absolutely Um, agree. But, again, like we talked about point blank, I understand the importance of Friday the 13th. Because it is, yes. even though maybe not in the same field as a point blank, but it is a very important film to cinema history. Because it really, even though it wasn't the first slasher, we could argue that... Halloween well, and Black Christmas.
1: Well, we could even say that uh, is it Jellos Bay of Blood all
2: slashers really? Uh,
1: what is it? Yeah, uh, Bay of Blood or yeah, Bay of Blood. The one that, that that Cunningham totally lifts from, and people, can, I know me and uh, Shempy have talked about this. How so Cunningham swears up and down, I think that I think that he'd never seen Bay of Blood.
2: Now, is that the same thing like Brian De Palma saying he never saw Deep Red,
1: or like <laughs> James Gunn saying he never saw Night of the Creeps? <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, or anybody saying they never saw anything, because I don't believe any of it for a minute. Like, uh, no, uh no, nor do somebody I. Somebody was talking well, about British the...
1: He didn't see uh, Infernal Affairs.
2: Yeah, Infernal Affairs, or, like, uh, I think it was, I can't remember who it was on the Facebook group, or somebody was talking about because they watched that story film thing, and they were talking about that, one of the early films, uh, The Great Train Robbery, one of those early films where oh, yeah. the character's pointing the gun right at the camera and shooting, and then Goodfellas, you got Joe Pesci doing the same thing. So, and we know Martin Scorsese is a student of film, so we Absolutely. know he's seen the original Great Train Robbery from way back when, right? So, you know, I mean, th- th- that's the thing about cultural, uh, an art form like cinema. There's no way that you're not influenced by things you've seen. There's no way. I don't, I, yeah. but to, to say you're, to deny it is a whole other level of...
1: It becomes insulting.
2: It does become insulting. Like Cunningham... Who was basically a porn filmmaker before he became kind of like a very big I think Glass House on the Left was his first kind of like hit. Yeah. Uh, and then he made some, you know, he made some good stuff. He's never a great director, but a great producer and stuff. And he made his men off the Friday thirteenth stuff, but he obviously had seen other stuff, you know. Oh yeah. He's no auteur.
1: No, he's certainly not. He's certainly not. Uh, this is
2: interesting, because Kevin Connor, I believe, I don't have my notes in front of me, but I believe he was an Englishman. Yeah, he was. Who shot a couple of Amicus films, maybe, maybe even yeah. some Hammer stuff, and kind of came over here and just couldn't find work. And so he just kind of jumped on the first thing he could finally find to get some work in Hollywood. The
1: land that and this is what it
2: was. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he did a lot of... Uh
2: I don't uh, know what he did after this. I didn't even look at his filmography or anything. Uh, I was it? He well,
1: actually. he had some of the TV work and, um, oh, some Heart to Heart, some Remington Steel. There you go. Standing. Uh, oh,
2: but yeah. I, I mean, I had seen, I think I'd seen one of his other films, but I didn't put two and two together that he did this film. I always thought this was done by some. Uh, slasher guy from the '80s. I didn't know it was done by an Englishman who came over looking for work. So
1: same here. But I tell you, I think I talked about this with you. I really want to see the one he did called Sunset Grill.
2: Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. No, I, I've heard of that. I've never seen it.
1: Peter Weller playing
2: disgraced ex-cop Ryder Hart. Ooh, I
1: like, uh, that
2: side. I like that name.
1: It's got Stacy Keach, John Rhys Davies. Oh, yeah, it's, it's I'm in. Miguel Fernandez. has got a good cast. So and it's got yeah mustachio dweller, so that'd be cool. Oh, yeah,
2: I'm really in now. Uh, we're in like Flynn.
1: Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think this film is really I I think that it it's so strange that it really was at the beginning of the boom yet it so playfully pokes at so many things that became staples and conventions in the genre.
2: Yeah, it kind of it kind of gets roped more into being a second-rate Texas Chainsaw Massacre than a slasher film, but really it's it's a little bit of both. It's kind of like, yes. you know, you're, you know the slashers, you get to know them, like you get to know the family in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but you also get the kind of, I don't know what I'm trying to say exactly because it's late for me as well, but... I think it plays like both sides of the fence and I don't think it knew it did that because agreed again, it came out at uh, the same time Friday the 13th. did, So obviously it wasn't riffing on anything Cunningham did.
1: Well, precisely. So, it was And like,
2: maybe, maybe it was riffing on Bava or maybe it was riffing on Argento and some of those guys, but I don't even think so. This has a very, it's weird. It's, it's made by an Englishman, but it has a very American slasher feel.
1: <laughs> it does. It has a very early kind of naivety and, uh, very much an early eighties feel, but it, it does it well, and that's the thing that you know. I don't think this is a, by any means uh, a perfect film, but
2: um, no, but it's certainly one of the more interesting eighties uh, horror curiosities, no yeah, doubt about it.
1: Yeah, no, it is because it plays with the conventions before the conventions were even conventions.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I know it, we got some listeners that are big fans of it, and oh, yeah. uh, I was kind of worried going back and watching it because, again, like I said, I picked it for a lot of reasons, nostalgia being one. And i got to be honest, I was really worried about going back and visiting, because going back and visiting stuff through nostalgia can be either bittersweet or uh, sometimes just straight-up disappointing. But this ended up being uh, pretty enjoyable, and actually, I think I like it more now than I did when I was growing up.
1: Yeah, I expected it to. I didn't know it had comedic elements, to be honest.
2: Yeah, and I didn't tell you, and I didn't tell you on purpose, because I didn't want to color anything in any way, shape, or form. I wanted it kind of just to hit you. Yeah. Well let's
1: let's mention one more thing before we, we have been a bit circuitous about the way we've got about things. Um Kevin uh ber, 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 what's his name here? Kevin Connor?
2: Kevin, Kevin Connor Connor, Connor
1: two episodes of the Dirty Dozen TV show.
2: No. <laughs> wow. Oh. I don't know how any of this stuff happens. This is all accidents, I swear.
1: This is amazing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, um <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I, I agree, and I think that um, you know another few films this reminds me of in some ways is Creepshow with yeah. this color palette, and it's kind of like a little bit Geordie Verrill, a little bit sometimes they come back. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it's got a few of that going, and of course, certainly TCM, you know, uh, yes, as well.
2: I mean, there's obvious influences from TCM, being you know hogheads, uh, slaughterhouses, chainsaws.
1: Farmer kind uh, of, you
2: know. Although I got to say, I, I really, the chainsaw battle in this is a lot of fun.
1: Well, and that's where I, I almost, it's weird. And that's another thing I was going to say, you kind of segue nicely into is in some ways this feels indebted to TCM, but TCM yeah. 2 is indebted to this with the chainsaw battle.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's what I was thinking too. I was thinking, okay, so maybe Hooper saw Motel Hell. And and really in a lot of ways, Motel Hell feels like a Hooper film Yeah, in some ways. It feels yep. like something he would have done. I don't think he would have done it as well as Connor because I think he would have been riffing on himself. But That's I think true. that uh, it does feel like that era of horror film and you know the kind of ideas that Hooper had and stuff going on, especially with the kind of grotesque stuff that happens in the film. The idea of fattening up people by burying them in the ground and, and cutting their vocal cords is truly one of the most grotesque things I can think of.
1: It is a really horrific idea um, that I feel like, I have to admit... Gets bungled a little bit by the execution, by way of the noise they make. I know Leslie, our good friend of our show, Leslie, had said it kind of terrified him the sound they made. But for, to me, the sound was unbelievably goofy.
2: Not only goofy, but it was. Uh, this, it, it became. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It became like a nails on a chalkboard thing for me.
1: Oh, it did. And, but at the end, I was
2: know. like, I was like, please stop.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it bothered me. And now again, you know, I'm looking at it as a grown man. Yeah. Whereas he's looking
2: at it through, yeah, he's looking through the through rose tinted glasses. Like I said, like I would have too. I remember being terrified by that and thinking, here's another thing about nostalgia. I remember thinking this film was ultra gory.
0: Oh yeah, it's and
2: not. It's not really that gory at all. It's, most Uh-oh. of it's implied. There is some blood and stuff and some, some, uh, you know, some butchered body parts and things like that. But nothing, nothing. Uh, that, you know, a 15, 16-year-old kid couldn't see and wouldn't be completely repulsed by. There's no real, other than that weird rape moment almost. Both of our films have weird almost rape moments. Uh, yeah, the, no kidding. Other than that moment, there's not really any real, like, nudity in the film, I don't think. Is there any is nudity in the film?
1: Uh, no, I think we get some, like, Oh, actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh... There,
2: there's, there's a scene where he pulls up to the drive-thru and he starts getting everybody out there and there's a girl that gets out of that car oh. naked.
1: And we should say that um, the drummer in this epitomizes <laughs> punk rock.
2: Yes, it's John Ratzenberger, isn't it? Good old
1: Ratzenberger, dear <laughs>
2: Yeah, Cliff man, I look, so, I look so hard for that song, I could not find it anywhere.
1: Cliff Claven does not look punk in any capacity.
2: No, there's nothing punk rock about John Ratzenberger. Oh. I'm sorry, it's maybe the most miscast part we've ever had on our show.
1: Yeah, he's unbelievably miscast. <laughs> Believably so. I have to say again, you'd mentioned the Blu-ray was looked really great. I had to watch part of this at work, and even the DVD looks really good. Nice, so, i nice. think them. Like it looks very nice. Um, I think the film takes its time, which I like. Yeah, it, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it it's fun. It, it, I, like, I, I, it likes the characters, and they're well written enough that you you don't mind it taking its time.
2: Yeah, and I like uh, you know I like all I like all the wily e. coyote moments. <laughs> With the uh, yeah. farmer Vincent, I like all that stuff. The way he's always kind of working out a new trap, and he never uses the same trap twice. At least I don't. I don't recall him using the same trap twice. It's like he's got multiple different ideas all the time.
1: Nor do I. You know, what I thought of with this film is Coop.
2: Yeah, it's
1: like <laughs> yeah. the anti-Coop film. Yeah. No yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it's just a very interesting satirical take on uh, the genre. Well, not
2: only that, but it doesn't, like, hit you over the head with it. You know, there's some exactly, parts of yeah. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, there's some parts of that where it's really kind of, Hooper's really kind of going for it. And yeah. uh, it feels like he's going for it, and he's preaching to you, as opposed to this, which I kind of feel is really, you know, they kind of they kind of sell this film on that whole uh, American Gothic idea, the uh, yes. you know, American oh, Gothic I, painting.
1: I'm so glad you mentioned that, because one of my notes was, American Gothic painting because the way they frame um, the way they frame uh, what's her name Nancy Parsons and Roy Calhoun a mm-hmm. couple of times really nods to American Gothic
2: yeah and they sell it on the box art as well and but I think what that does also is it it kind of you know it makes it kind of this this, this kind of all American I don't know man it's just really weird I can't I still can't believe for the life of me I still cannot believe that this film was made by an Englishman.
1: Yeah, it is very curious. United Artists—it's its, it's logo. Sadly, we don't get to see as much as we should have.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's kind of died in the—I uh, think early '80s.
1: Yeah, it's too bad. It's
2: maybe one of the last films they did.
1: Yeah, well,
2: no, I think add. they did. That. I think they did the Rocky films. Some of the Rocky films yeah. in the '80s. That's true. I think they did Rocky Four even.
1: Yeah, they might have. I'm not sure. I
2: love Farmer Vincent's uh, pickup truck too. By the way, I'm a bit of a car nut. Oh, yeah. I don't always talk about it on the show, but I uh, mean it's a sweet truck nice good shape looks nice
1: yeah no it does look good it looks very good um what else do we got here i think there's a good chemistry between the leads yep and all the yep. characters again spending time with them they're likable but their interactions are relatively likable and i like you know okay now another film i feel like is indebted to this because it looks at the nuts and bolts of what calhoun's doing is I feel like behind the mask, Leslie, Leslie, Vernon, Leslie Vernon is indebted yeah. to this film.
2: Yeah, I feel that way too. Um, like,
1: you're
2: seeing, like you're seeing him, you're seeing him work. Like there's a scene where they're in the garden, I think, and some people come up to the, uh, the hotel, mm-hmm. and he's like, "Didn't you put the out of order sign up?" And blah, 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 blah. and he comes back, and I think it ends up being that sex couple, which is just a bizarre interlude.
1: That is a bizarre, bizarre,
2: <laughs> very bizarre interlude in the film that I had totally forgotten about.
1: That was one, yeah. A lot of bondage and oil and cross dressing
2: and so strange,
1: very strange. Um, what else do we got here? Now were they? I guess Ida and or Vincent and Ida, they were meant to be daughter, father,
2: correct? No, I think they were supposed to be brother or brother sister.
1: Mm, maybe that makes more sense. Yeah,
2: I think I think they were all siblings. I think the cop was a sibling too. Now, I could be wrong about that because Parsons does look much younger than Calhoun, but
1: mm-hmm.
2: I don't know. I never really got a I never really got a dad vibe from it.
1: No, yeah, that's interesting. Um,
2: Matter of fact, I didn't really get a vibe from it. I mean, talk about three actors who look nothing alike cast as siblings.
1: <laughs> yeah, Neither. no kidding. Um, I can't think of
2: three people who look more different than uh, <laughs> well, that one guy Calhoun, we were talking Paul about, Link. Paul Link. Yeah, Calhoun and Nancy Parsons.
1: Yeah, tell me about it. It's uh you already mentioned it, but I gotta mention it again. That hustler confiscation. <laughs> <That's>,
2: <laughs> now that is a comedic moment that really works. It is, it does work. That's a great moment. I really That's like good. that. I like Wolfman Jack's face and and he's good at it too. And like I said, you know, he's got the mercy. Yeah, it's you know, good. He says mercy and stuff. Ooh, he does that too. Yeah, it's really. And he good. sticks it in his briefcase. It's a nice little <laughs> moment.
1: Yeah, it certainly is. Uh I love the uh the fakest beard in the history of cinema. Why give that punk or that punk, that like hippie kind of rock eye, why give him a beard at all?
2: Yeah, I know. I don't understand that either. It looked it is awful.
1: So fake. So <laughs> fake. Um, finally we get the uh you know what Calhoun looks like a bit to me is Al Holbrook from certain angles. Yeah.
0: yeah. Face a little like bit
1: slimmer, to- but uh um, what else do we got
2: He's been on our show a couple. I mean, he's on an Avenging Angel. I think he may have been on the show another time.
1: No, actually,
2: so he's been on the show a few times. Yeah,
1: I Angel I, is Angel's the big one I remember.
2: Yeah, I can't believe, uh, you know, if you told me when, when we started the show we'd be doing some Rory Calhoun films. i have been like, ah, but now that we know he's done Roller Braid Warriors, one of his last films, Taken by Force,
1: we got to step it up.
2: Yeah, we're gonna, uh, you know, I know we'll cover Angel at some time. We did Avenging Angel. I'll never we'll cover Angel at did,
1: some point did the, you know? Didn't we do the first two or no?
2: Oh no. No, no no, we just did we just did part two.
1: Christina picked it, I think.
2: Yeah, Christina picked it, yeah.
1: Yeah. No, you're right, finally we get the pig head at the end, which might be might be the most cumbersome uh, killer mask. Yeah, I don't know. That I don't makes know how that owl mask in stage fright look sleek and and functional. Yeah, yeah. And never mind the
2: smell of this thing (laughs) sliding around on your head. Yeah, it makes the owl mask look like an Apple product compared to, to, uh, you know, that fucking uh, pig's head. That pig head, that that makes no sense. I mean, it looks good. Well, actually, I don't even say it looks good. It looks kind of, I mean, it is. It doesn't make any sense. No, it, it's easily the biggest pig they once had.
1: Oh my gosh! And they and they and I have to give them credit. They kind of foreshadow that they have some big pigs, but this yep. pig's on another
2: level. Oh yeah, this is Hogzilla. This is like that picture show <laughs> yeah. a long time ago on the internet,
1: Razorback or something. or
2: something. Yeah, the giant Razorback or whatever. This is definitely. Uh, you know another level of pig head and uh, yeah and I, I agree with you that
1: uh, i wouldn't i wouldn't even wear that why wear it oh no, that's some next level pig head that you don't need to deal with it's going to stink your face is going to be covered there's no way listen you could stand still still you could stand still that thing is sliding it's like gloopy and sliding down your face and it's going to like- stink so bad
2: yeah, it was almost like using the word snill. I almost thought we were on a Dr. Seuss podcast or something for a second. <laughs>
1: That'd be amazing. We well, were talking about pig with the old green eggs and ham there, buddy.
2: Yeah, yeah. But I agree with you. Why not just go ahead and put the fake beard on?
1: Why? why? Yeah, put, yeah, put why? the fake beard on instead.
2: I mean, if you need to disguise yourself. First of all, it's a dead giveaway. It's Farmer Vincent because he only wears one costume. The, in the fucking, whole fucking
1: overalls, self. man.
2: And the red shirt.
1: Yeah, why <laughs> make yourself more cumbersome?
2: Yeah, I guess it maybe maybe you could maybe argue that it's some kind of perversion or something like that. But it, you know, I think it's a selling point, obviously, because it's sold on the poster. It's, I was going
1: to say that's the only thing I can think of is it's like we got this idea, the guy's a farmer, mm-hmm. fucking work the pig head mask in somehow. Yeah. And they had to shoot, yeah, because they could sell it. I mean, anymore.
2: it is a grotesque image. A grotesque. It is. Thing. It's
1: a great image. It is a yeah. great image. It looks really good. It's it just practical, no nuts and that's Yeah, make <laughs> no sense. At all. Yeah. But
2: that's the way it goes. Um, then again, we did review a film where somebody got raped into the carcass of a pig once.
1: Yeah.
2: At least it makes sense. It just has some kind of weird, grotesque sense. Well,
1: and we also had um, an Asian man transform into a talking pig. So <laughs> yeah, and We've had some that. really
2: strange pig trauma on this show.
1: Pigs must be the official animal at TMC. <laughs> you
2: know, that, that would make sense.
1: It would make sense in a lot of ways. <laughs> <laughs> um I'm all done with my notes. I'll kick it
2: over to you. Okay. I don't have a whole lot more to add. I kinda went into a lot of it as we went along, but yeah, there's just this is an interesting film where they 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 throw in these kind of weird moments in it and it works. Like they don't feel out of place like they did in the Town of The Dreaded Sundown or No. Uh not that I had a big problem with those, but they did feel a little out of place to me. These they did. almost feel like these little vin- vignettes of uh kind of like early eighties. What the idea of somebody thought was funny. Yeah. And this kind of like uh, gr- uh, grotesque. I keep using that word, but that's what it is really. It is a story, kind of like this grotesque story. And sometimes with grotesque, you get comedy out of that. And, and uh, there is this kind of really black, dark comedy in here that uh, I was actually pleasantly surprised held up. Uh, oh, yeah. I know. But, but I got to say that Roy Calhoun, as great as he is, I really feel like they wanted to cast a younger actor as the Farmer Vincent character because, you know, he's getting hit on by the young blonde. He got all this stuff going on. I mean, Roy Calhoun when he was younger, he was a dashing man, no doubt about it. But, I mean, and he's a decent-looking older man. But I just felt like... Yeah, he is. I just felt like, you know, (laughs) maybe they should have got somebody a little younger, maybe. Uh, Yeah. But don't don't get me wrong. I'm very happy Roy Calhoun's in the film because he really... He kind of, when him and uh, Parsons are on screen together... Or even when they're separate in a lot of ways, they bring a lot of life to the movie because as good as him and Parsons are and even the uh, – what's the name of the actor? The Chips actor? I can't remember his name Link. again. Yeah, Link. As good as – I think that's what it is. As good as they are, all three of them, uh, and the sex couples, interesting stuff, the blonde lead, I found her to be very uh, – almost naive to a point of irritating – Uh, she really kind of got on my nerves after a while, and I didn't really understand why he randomly selected her.
1: Oh, Terry, and and Terry doesn't ask, that's her name in the thing, and she asks no questions. No, she doesn't. Like, oh, man.
2: She is so naive. I mean, I've seen very few characters that are that naive to keep the story
1: moving. Were they maybe clumsily trying to convey that she had amnesia?
2: Uh, maybe, maybe they the were, only maybe they were trying to say, is this a satire? Maybe they were trying to say that Americans don't really want to look maybe. at what's in their meat. Yeah. You know, maybe yeah. I, I might be giving it too much credit, but maybe that's what her character.
1: I think there's to be. part of that. I think there's definitely some, some lampooning of, um, yeah, of, the, uh, the, practice, the meat industry, the meat industry yeah. and their practices. And
2: yeah. Um, because I mean, if you, you know, there's so many meat documentaries now. If you want to go down some dark roads, you can go out there and go down some pretty dark roads. So
1: you sure can.
2: Yeah, and as somebody who likes to eat meat. I mean, I know a lot of our some of our listeners don't. I find that perfectly fine.
1: Yeah, and as and I, I get older, me. I tend to lean a little more that way. Yeah,
2: but I, I don't. I, do I don't eat meat. as much of it as I used to either, but I do enjoy oh. my meats. Uh, I don't want to know.
1: I'm about with that you. Stuff. <laughs> I, I don't really want to, and I know it is someone would <laughs> say, "Well, you guys are sticking your heads in the sand." Same shame on you, but. I, I just, I don't want to know some of those things.
2: I don't, I just don't want to know. <laughs> no. But yeah, I don't have a whole lot more to add. I just think, you know, it's, it's, it was fun to revisit this. And I was actually really happy that, uh, this turned out to be as much fun as it was because I, I gotta be honest, sometimes when you pick these films through nostalgia, you really don't know what you're getting into. I think I picked, yeah, I picked prison through nostalgia essentially. And that was kind of a, I mean, it was okay, but it wasn't, it wasn't nearly as good as I remembered it being at the time, you know? It yeah. still looked nice, but it wasn't nearly as good as I thought it was. Yeah, yeah. The first time I saw it, so oh, for sure. But this one worked out. This one actually I think is better than when I used to watch it a long time ago. So yeah, let's go ahead and get in our MVTs and make a breaks so we nice. can go to sleep.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I gotta be up in five hours and put some Cheerios <laughs> on the table. Ooh oh, Brutal. Um My Make Or Break is uh Is the scene when um uh, Calhoun's in the truck breaking down what he does and why he does it, like all the all the stuff oh, yeah. with his sister, and the passion and dedication for his craft and yeah. he this isn't really an evil guy per se. He's grown up a certain way, thinking that it's okay to do what he does in order to get what he what well what the the, the, the kind folk of his town want. That's some yeah. of Farmer Vincent's uh, meat. meat. Yeah.
2: It takes all kinds of critters feet. to make Farmer
1: Vincent's critters. Critter, that's, that's right, man. <laughs> so I really like that scene. Uh, my MVP, I'm going to go with Calhoun. I think yeah, nice. if he was, if it was like a dull or annoying lead, oh, man. I thought the film was weak otherwise. But I feel like you have to be in his corner and understand. I agree with you. you no, know,
2: a little bit. I agree. I mean, if it had been, let's say if it had been uh, Charles Nelson Reilly, it wouldn't oh, work. Man.
1: no. <laughs> No, definitely not.
2: Or maybe even Wolfman Jack. He's he's okay in bits and pieces. He's okay. That's right. That's right.
1: And my score is a seven out of ten. Nice. Um, you know, am I saying Point Breaks or Point Break? Point Blanks. Only point seven or yeah, point seven five better of a film. No, it's probably a lot better in some ways. But what this film sets out to do, this is in its own small way a watershed moment, alongside, ironically, the the release two months prior watershed moment in slasher films. Friday the Thirteenth. Yeah, um,
2: it's a bit of a gym. It really is. Uh, I was kind of surprised.
1: Yeah, it is. And again, I think there's some really clumsy things, and I wish if it had been played straight faced with the setup it has. Oh man, it could be one for the ages. But it's a fun yeah. film with interesting characters that are well written. You you actually like, like we had said, Ida Smith and no, Ida Smith. Um, Nina Axelrod as Terry is the weakest link. But yeah, she is but the two, you know, Ida and Vincent Smith, Calhoun and Parsons are really great enough individually and together. They're great.
2: Yep. Yeah. I agree with you. Uh, I, I think the film, uh, really was a surprise and, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's a masterpiece and I agree with you is, you know, was point blanks a little bit better than this. Yeah. In in the genres they're working in, I think that's fair enough. I think it's fair enough score. Uh, my maker break is I really like the chainsaw battle. I can't deny that. Yeah. As ludicrous as it is with the pig head and all that stuff, it's just, it looked dangerous. I don't know how they got the sparks on, the, I mean, this is the days before those, some of those things. I don't know how they got the sparks going. I'd like to believe that they figured something out, like maybe putting some flint or something yeah, on yeah. on those blades, because otherwise it was pretty dangerous shit, especially for the guy in the pig head.
1: Well, dude takes two slaps on, on that kind of a sloppy floor. Yeah, and he's going up like there's there's a banana peel there.
2: The other thing you said, though, you know, if this thing was played straight, it would have to be one of the meanest horror films ever made. If it was played straight, uh-huh. it would be such a cruel film. And I don't think in 1980, I think coming out of the 70s, we saw some cruel genre films. But I think by 80, 81, the cruelty of horror was still there. But there was this kind of over-exaggeration of gore, which kind of made it almost satirical. And a kind of ludicrous and stuff, which people would laugh at. You know, action became really crazy. You know, you giggle at somebody getting blown to smithereens because it was escapism and stuff. So I think that this was made in '80. If this was made in like early '70s, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I think this film would have been almost too cruel. Uh, for I mean, I think it would have been a nice film that that way too, but it would have been too cruel for a lot of people. Yeah. some of the stuff they do is so cruel. Uh, but they sure do it in is. such a loving way. It's so strange. And I think uh,
1: they do. You're right.
2: Yeah, my MVT is also Rory Calhoun. He's he's fantastic in the film. But Nancy Parsons, she gets a very close runner up. She's a lot of fun too. Yep. Uh, and my score is the same as yours, seven out of ten. Nice. On the nose. It's a good, uh, solid stuff, man. Definitely worth a pickup. As Will said, the DVD looks great, but trust me, the Blu-ray looks pretty fantastic. Yeah, it does. And I say that with a V.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> the only way. All
2: right, man. That's the show. What are we doing next week? You want to announce it? or You want me to announce it?
1: Um, Yeah. Can you announce it, actually?
2: Yeah. Okay. I'll do it. All right. So next week we are uh, bringing great friend of the show, brother from another mother, uh, Rupert from out on the West Coast, Brian. Uh, he has the
1: leather Bucket. pants.
2: Yes. Uh, the white leather ones, right? Yes. Or, or, Is he the white or the red? No, he's, he's white. white. Yeah, he's Yeah, that's right. Uh, He's uh, a... <laughs> He's coming back on the show. been a long time. We haven't had him on in a while. He's been doing some other things. Uh, the blog is blowing up for him. Uh, he's on another podcast, I believe. Uh, I think he does a Shout Factory podcast uh,
1: nice.
2: for for them, yeah. I believe. Uh, him and another guy do. Uh, I don't know that for sure, so don't mark my words for it. Um, but I remember him announcing something like that. Um, but, yeah, he's coming back on the show. Uh, it's going to be great to have him on. We asked him to program the show, and we asked him because we never know what we're going to get with Roop. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the last time he was on the show, I think you guys did a WC Fields. Well, actually I think he's been on the, f- he was on like one of our Halloween shows or maybe was, no, he was on our death Wish show. That was the last time he,
1: he was on, on our I death with show. Yeah. And yeah, he's picked an instructional video for us in the past. He's yeah,
2: he's picked some really interesting stuff. Some George Burns video. heist films. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. WC Fields film, uh, yeah. some uh, Chinese art films. Remember that? I remember that one shot couldn't be on. He picked yo-yo.
1: Oh, the Taiwanese yeah, yeah. film by Edward yeah. oh, Was it Edward Ma, I think. Or?
2: Yeah, I think so, yeah. Anyway. So anyway, very interesting guy. One of the, you know, true gents of the group. But he picked uh, Top Hat, which is Fred Astaire. I think Ginger Rogers. Might be somebody else, but I hope it's Ginger Rogers or else I look like a fool. But either way, that's from 1935. We're going to be doing that. And we're going to be doing our first, because uh, hopefully we'll do some more, uh, Audie Murphy uh, Western. Um which is Ride Clear of Diablo from 1954. And for those who want to play along at home, Top Hat's available to rent at most of your streaming rental places. Um, Ride Clear of Diablo is not. But thankfully for the the technology that is YouTube, it's there to watch. So it's not the greatest print, but hey, you can see the film, right? That's right. I've seen much worse, trust me.
1: <laughs> we have seen much worse.
2: We could just hear our review of Candy Tangerine, man, you'd know.
1: That's the one I was you <laughs> took the words out of my
2: mouth. That's still easily one of the worst films not one of the worst films, one of the worst looking films we've ever oh, yeah. reviewed. That film is beat the shit.
1: Oh man, was it ever?
2: But yeah, that'll be next week, so and we'll get back on a normal schedule now. I moved in, we'll we'll get back to normal. Tiff's almost Tiff's over essentially. Yes. And so everything will get back to normal and but just to give there by a listener uh, kind of a peek. Uh, we're hoping maybe soon that we can do TIFF together again soon sometime. Oh, we haven't been able to do it since back in the day. so yeah. Things just haven't worked out, so we're hoping to do it again sometime soon. So
1: Very soon, yeah.
2: But, yeah, it's the big show, man.
1: With that, I guess, uh, really, we have one more thing left to say.
2: Yeah, That is, adios. Adios. Thanks
0: for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com. You can call the gentleman at 206-666-5207. And you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com.